Welcome everyone. We are in Joshua chapter 10. We were in Joshua chapter 10 last week and we got through the first 14 verses. So today we're going to read the entire chapter again. It's kind of long, but I think it's worthwhile. Joshua chapter 10. This is uh, the area, the section of the book where they're beginning to push quite a bit deeper into the land. They, we looked at the chapters where they were pretty much contained in the central part of Canaan where they had encountered the battles of Ai and Jericho. And uh, now they're getting ready to push quite a bit further, uh, well into the south part of the of the land of Canaan. Joshua chapter 10, verse number 1. It says, Now it came to pass when Adonazedic, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore, Adonazedic, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Japhia, king of Lachish, and unto Debur, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them to Azekah and unto Makedah. It came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah and they died. They were more which died with the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makedah. 
And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Makkedah. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave and set men by it for to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after them your enemies and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makedah in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open up the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so and brought those and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. It came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed, be strong and of good courage, for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees, and they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid, and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain unto this very day. And that day Joshua took Makeda and smote it with the edge of the sword. And the king thereof he utterly destroyed them and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain, and he did to the king of Makeda as he did unto the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him unto Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord delivered it also in the king thereof into the hand of Israel. And he smote it with the edge of the sword and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain in it, but did unto the king thereof as he had done unto the king of Jericho. And Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him unto Lachish and encamped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, which took it on the second day and smote it with the edge of the sword and all the souls that were therein according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua smote him and his people until he had left him none remaining. And from Lachish, Joshua passed unto Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. And he took it on that day and smote it with the edge of the sword, and all the souls that were therein he utterly destroyed that day according to all that he had done to Lachish. And Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him unto Hebron, and they fought against it. And they took it and smote it with the edge of the sword and the king thereof and all the cities thereof and all the souls that were therein. He left none remaining according to all that he had done to Eglon, but destroyed it utterly and all the souls that were therein. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debur and fought against it. And he took it and the king thereof and all the cities thereof and they smote them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the souls that were therein. He left none remaining as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Debur and to the king thereof, as he had done also to Libna and to her king. So Joshua smote all the country of the hills, and of the south, and of the vale, and of the springs, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua smote them from Kadesh Barnea, even unto Gaza, and and all the country of Goshen, even unto Gibeon. 
And all these kings in their land did Joshua take at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him into, unto the camp to Gilgal. And let's pray. Father, I thank You for yet another opportunity to study Your Word. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to Your Word, that we would endeavor to approach it as though we believe wholeheartedly that it's true. And Lord, I pray that You would give us wisdom as we discern the true meaning of it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week we got through the first 14 verses. So we come to verse number 15. And as we saw last week, uh, that day of those battles was literally the longest day in the history of the world. You know, we say we have a long day, but this really was a long day. You, you recall the sun stood still there in verse number 12. Most believe probably providing a, an additional 12 hours of light, so this would have been a 36-hour day. And so they were probably looking forward to rest and going back to Gilgal, but there was this matter that required Joshua's attention, this matter that these five kings had been discovered. And so their retreat and rest is going to have to wait a little while. In verse number 17, we see that it says, and it was told Joshua. And that's, you know, a phrase that we might just gloss right over. But, um, you know, I kind of wondered, how did they know? What, how was it told to Joshua? Um, all of the Canaanites were supposed to have been destroyed, and so it would seem like it was probably a, you know, an Israelite that had noticed them being hid in these caves. Um, we don't know for sure, but um, nevertheless, Joshua was notified. These kings were no doubt terrified. Um, the Threats against them from the Lord were probably much more terrifying to them than the threats against them of the soldiers because, uh, you know, this follows right after we're told that there was this great hailstorm and, you know, if, if the size, well, we know the size of that hail was obviously significant because it killed more of them than, than Israel killed with the sword. So no doubt they were terrified because, you know, they were not just facing, you know, the, Slaughter from the Israelites, but also, you know, these, these hailstorms. On July 22, 2003, an Iraqi informed the U.S. military that Saddam Hussein's two sons were hiding up in a house. I kind of, it's easy for me to remember the date of that because I was on my way back from Peru and I was in the airport and I had pretty much been uh, cut off from most of the news, and so I was kind of catching up for a few weeks, and I thought that was particularly interesting, you know, because, you know, here we're told, and it was told Joshua, and we don't really know, again, how, how it was told Joshua. You may recall that during the, during the, you know, the initial, you know, the beginning of that war in 2003, when, when our country had gone to war with Iraq, that there was this famous deck of cards, and each one had been assigned a, a particular card, and Uday and Qusay, the two sons of Saddam Hussein, were the ace of spades and, and the ace of clubs, and they were, they, were, they were discovered, and it was told. And the man who had given, uh, had told the U.S. military where, you know, in which house they were hiding, he did actually receive the $30 million reward that was 
that had been offered for the death of those two men. And he ended up relocating to the United States as a result of that, and his most of his entire family was was killed in Iraq. But, you know, here we see in verse 17, it was told Joshua, and so Joshua's got a decision to make. You know, he's going to have to decide whether or not, you know, he's going to pursue, whether he's going to go back to Gilgal and, and take, a, take a rest, or he's going to continue on in this battle and pursue these, these other nations. And so he decides that he's going to have these men locked in this cave, and then he's you know, he decides that, that they've got to proceed forth and, and continue to conquer those people that were, that were on the run, that were trying to escape. Turn to Second Kings chapter 25. I think it's worthwhile to take a look at how God deals with some of these kings and their wickedness. We probably have a little bit of a tendency to underestimate their wickedness. In 2 Kings chapter 25, we have detailed the wickedness of Nebuchadnezzar. And I know myself, you know, when I'm reading the book of Daniel, if I didn't have the information in 2 Kings 25, I probably wouldn't be able to, to really at all, um, you know, really come to a conclusion as to just how wicked Nebuchadnezzar was. You know, we think of him setting up the the image of the various metals in the book of Daniel and doing some of those things, but that doesn't really indicate the, the wickedness that he was a part of. And, you know, nothing's changed in our day. Um, you know, we recall the, the wickedness of Saddam Hussein and um, interesting, you know, from the, from the same city, Babylon. And uh, I remember I was reading a while ago, this was years ago, I, I had read that as the as the people of Iraq lived in poverty, Saddam Hussein had 50 palaces that that were worth an approximate five billion dollars. And I kind of you know I kind of wondered whether or not my memory was correct on that. So I went and looked and was doing some research this week, and I was looking online, and my memory wasn't correct. There were actually 75 palaces worth about five billion dollars. And he actually he would he would have a new palace built every time a war was over. And he would always dedicate it to that war. And as, as one of his own men said in Saddam Hussein's eyes, every war was considered a victory as long as he survived. And that's, that's, that was his mentality. And that kind of illustrates his wickedness. But here in Second Kings chapter 25, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I think it's worth noting just how wicked Nebuchadnezzar was. Notice in verse number 3, it says, and on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. Now, the the Babylonians were coming to to take over the the country, and this was one of the strategies. If a if a this was this was a common strategy of war at that time. If if a particular city that was very well fortified and with a wall was was being attacked, and they were able to defend themselves. A lot of times the opposing army would just wait as long as was necessary outside the city before they ran out of food and they would just starve them to death. Down in verse number 7, it says, And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. And this was all done at the command of Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to... His... his purpose was to make sure that the last thing that Zedekiah witnessed was the death of his sons. Verses 9 and 10, 
And he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and every man, every great man's house burnt he with fire. And all the armies of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. And we're pretty well familiar with near total destruction that they, that they did to, to this land of Judah. Verses 13 through 17, we're well aware that they stole the, the precious metals. Verses 13 through 17 kind of detail some of the splendor that Solomon had created, and now it's, it's come under siege. And the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord, and the bases, and the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord, did the Chaldees break in pieces and carried the brass of them to Babylon. And the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the spoons and all the vessels of brass wherewith they ministered took they away. And the firepans and the bowls and such things as were of gold in gold and of silver in silver the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, and the bases which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the brass of all these vessels was without weight. And that just means it was beyond measure. As we know, Solomon had accumulated so much wealth they didn't bother to count it. Verse 17, the height of the one pillar was 18 cubits and the chapiter upon it was brass and the height of the chapiter three cubits and the wreathen work and the pomegranates upon the chapiter round about all of brass and like unto these had the second pillar with wreathen work. So we see here that this is all confiscated. This is taken back to, to Babylon. This is complete disrespect of the house of the Lord and anything pertaining to the things of the Lord. I'll turn to Daniel chapter 4. Kind of see a little bit of a continuation of this incident. Daniel chapter 4. This is where Daniel has his vision of the great tree. And and of course that represents the, the kingdom of under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. I think these verses are particularly relevant because they, they kind of let us see how God expects all of us to, to, to live before Him. Not just, not just kings, but certainly kings. We know from the book of Proverbs, kings are given a much greater responsibility. Daniel chapter 4, verse 25. This is a pretty familiar verse. God makes it clear why these things are done that they shall drive thee from men and thy dwelling, and, and Daniel here is interpreting the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, that they shall drive thee from men and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as auction, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that, that, that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. That's the purpose. God wants us to know that he is in charge, that he is in, he's in complete control, that he rules all. And it's the same way that those kings are meeting their demise in the book of Joshua. God has an agenda. He wants us to all recognize him as, his, as the supreme ruler. Down in verse number 29, and here, here we kind of see, the, uh, here we see the, the fulfillment of Daniel's interpretation of the dream. And at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. This is referring to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Now, if you read that verse and red flags don't just go up, I'm, uh, you know, they, they ought to. Um, what, a, what a great warning to us as for those of us, all of us that struggle with pride. I mean, just look at that verse. 
I mean, he's just inviting God's judgment. Notice, I have built my power, my majesty. No glory given to the Lord whatsoever. We've got to be so careful of that. Verse 31, While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee. Again, here we have repeated what was stated in verse 25. Until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The point is clear. God wants people to recognize who it is that is in control and who's in charge of this world. Verse 33. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand nor say unto Him, What doest thou? If, if we're struggling with pride, read verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. God can do with us as He pleases. We are at His mercy. We, we have to understand that. Verse 36, And at the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Of course, we, 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 we must understand that. We must believe that. Uh, we need The Bible tells us we need to humble ourselves, so God doesn't have to humble us. Turn to chapter 5, verse 18. Here is Daniel interpreting the writing on the wall to the son of Nebuchadnezzar, speaking to his son about his father. Verse 18, O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he, whom he would he slew and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up and whom he would he put down. But his heart, but his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men and his heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. This is, this is where we wanted to go. This is worded differently than in verse 25 and 32 of chapter 4. Now it's, it's past tense. Till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and then he appointed over it whomsoever he will. That was God's purpose there. Now, unfortunately, it took Nebuchadnezzar seven years to figure this out, to give God the glory and the praise and the honor that he deserved. Hopefully in our lives it's not like that. Hopefully it doesn't take so long for us to come to the place where we submit ourselves and recognize 
that God is in control and that He deserves our praise and our worship. As Pastor just was, was saying a week or two ago, you know, this is, this is the time when men are having their day, but God's going to have His day. And, you know, back in the book of Joshua, that's what's becoming of these five kings. They are, they are meeting their judgment. Now turn back to Joshua chapter 10. Again, the reaction that, that, that eventually God gets from Nebuchadnezzar is the reaction He wants from each one of us to, to just acknowledge that we are at His disposal and that, he, that He's in charge, that, he's, that He rules, that it's, it's not of our own doing, that we, we shouldn't be lifted up with pride. To an extent, of course. You know, when it con- when it conflicts with what the Bible teaches, then we have a right, right. No, I agree. I, right, right. I, I I understand what you're saying. Right, and and that's sometimes a difficult line that we have trouble distinguishing between. You know, when is it my preference? When am I, you know, when am I just being rebellious and and not actually holding out because I'm wanting to be faithful to the Lord? But, you know, truly there are times, and I think in the future, when it's going to get a lot worse, when we're going to be called to make that distinction. Then we're going to have to decide whether we want to be, whether we want to be faithful to the Lord or faithful to the laws of our land. But yeah, that's a good point. Back in Joshua chapter 10, uh, Joshua, verse 18, Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave and set men by it for to keep it. Um, you know, notice this word goes right to the top. You know, when, when it was told Joshua, there was a reason it was told Joshua. These, whoever told him wasn't presumptuous. They, they understood that, um, you know, there was leadership and that leadership needed to be involved in the decision-making process. They didn't just take it upon themselves to, to take whatever action they thought was necessary. And, you know, sometimes that's tricky for us. You know, we, we, we don't, you know, Real wisdom is understanding our limitations, understanding when we need to defer to someone else. I think of the incident in in Second Samuel chapter one when the young man came to David and he says, "You know, I have slain Saul, but it was at Saul's request." And of course, you know, David came down very hard on him. David killed him. He says, "You know, how how is it that you weren't scared to touch the Lord's anointed?" And you know that that was a poor decision on that young man's part, but. Here, word is given to Joshua. He's respected. He has been given the respect that he is deserving and the respect that God told him that he was going to have. God had told him that if he was faithful to him, he was going to see that he was respected to the extent that Moses was and that he was magnified. And we're seeing that. These people come to Joshua as recognizing his leadership. Now, Joshua, again, as, as is consistent throughout the book, he, you know, he displays effective leadership. He understands crisis management. He understands that things have to be prioritized. 
Um, he says, we got to wait on this. We're not going to deal with these five kings right now. Just make sure that they're locked in this cave and that they can't escape. But he says, we've got more pressing matters to at hand. And he, he recognizes the importance that the battle needs to continue. And he sends his army and his troops to continue to pursue the Canaanites. He recognizes that if they didn't, the opportunity would be lost because, you know, they've got them on their heels. And Joshua doesn't want to give them an opportunity and have time to regroup and, you know, come up with a, you know, a strategy to save themselves. So, you know, that's effective leadership. Understanding what's got to be done now and what can wait. And I just happen to note it. I mean, it just came to my mind. I see the similarities here, you know, between the death of our Lord. The Bible says in the New Testament in Matthew that a great stone was rolled over the sepulcher that Joseph of Arimathea had used to, to put the Lord Jesus Christ in. And the Pharisees had gone to the ruler and begged for guards to be set and to, to protect it. And so there's quite a contrast here. Our Lord wasn't able, wasn't able to be contained even with the great stone and the, and the guards. And yet it's effective here. It demonstrates the superiority of our Lord that he was able to rise from the dead even despite all of those efforts you know to prevent him from doing so then in verse number 19 notice that it says at the end of the verse for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand you know when I was talking to Ann last week after class and she kind of pointed out the same thing is stated in verse number 8 it's very you know don't don't miss the tense you know it's not saying God is going to deliver them into your hand. God has delivered them into your, into your hand. And that's the way the Bible a lot of times speaks. You know, we're to believe God's word as though, you know, God's promise is as good as if it's already done. And it's, it's, it's a point very well taken. Verse number 20, we do see that some of the Canaanites, they do escape in defense cities. They do escape into fortified cities. And, you know, these remnants that we, we, we will see in the book of Joshua, there are many times remnants of, of the people that, you know, remain and escape. And, and, you know, if you go on and read the book of Judges and some of the other books in the Old Testament, you'll see that those people later became a thorn in the side of the Israelites. Verse number 21 it says, and all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makkedah in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. What this is saying is that nobody dared to come up with a plan like this again. Uh, you know, this, the, the point is well taken. These five kings had constructed this plan that they were going to seek revenge against the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites had sided with the Israelites and... Um, you know, the, the slaughter is so great and, and the action is so swift that, you know, in the future, nobody's going to think to do anything like that again. And the same thing happened when they left Egypt. Back in Exodus chapter 11, verse 7, the Israelite, the Egyptians had that same attitude. You know, they had been holding out. We're, we're familiar with the ten plagues. And when the tenth plague finally came, the, the death of the firstborn then the Egyptians, you know, that was their breaking point. They said, you know, we've had enough. We're not going. And that's that's the expression used. They didn't move their tongue against the Israelites again. And, you know, they, you can just imagine the despair of the of the Egyptians. You know, the Bible tells us that when the Israelites left, they were able to take great substance from the from the Egyptians. You know, they you know, our translation says they borrowed jewels and all of these things, you know, uh, you know, after the death of the firstborn. You know, as we would understand, you know, material things become pretty irrelevant. 
You know, I mean, their attitude is just go. Get out of here. Do whatever you have to. Take whatever you think you need. We just, you know, we're tired of this. We don't want God's judgment on us anymore. Go. And that's that's the, to the point the Egyptians were. Well, that's kind of the, the idea here. You know, these people are dispirited. I mean, they are broken. They should be. You know, they... They can see that, you know, their demise is imminent. God's going to have His way. They're going to meet their destruction. Verse number 22, Joshua finally confronts the kings after, after the battle has, has continued against the, the other fleeing groups of people. They are brought to Joshua in verse 23. And in verse 24, we see that Joshua is, decides that he's going to teach the captains of his army a lesson, an object lesson. And, and I think the lesson here is that God is faithful. I, I think if you look at what Joshua's saying in verse 25, that's, that's the purpose, that's the intent. He repeats in, in verse 25 the, the encouragement that he had been given by the Lord in Joshua 1.9, God had told him not to, to, to not fear and not be dismayed. And that's what he tells these kings. There may have been a little bit of public humiliation involved in this, but I, I really don't think that that was the, the intent here. Um, you know, I, th- I think the intent here is, to, is for him to demonstrate that God is faithful. It's to show his captains, you know, hey, God made good on his word. He said he was going to deliver these people into our hand, and he has. And that's, that's really the purpose. Public humiliation was kind of standard in those days. I, I noticed when I was reading about the, the two sons of Saddam Hussein, maybe you'll recall, you know, when they were when they were killed, you know, the U.S. military sent, you know, very uh, graphic photographs of their bodies, you know, and, you know, within a few hours of their death, it was all over the world, and, and we, were, we were very much criticized for that. We were, you know, taken to task for that, saying that that was our only agenda was to, was to humiliate them. And, you know, was that really the the purpose of war? Was that really, you know, the goal that we were supposed to have? And so, you know, later on we kind of apologized for that and, you know, said that it was for other reasons. But um, I don't think that's really what's going on here. I I don't necessarily think public humiliation was the primary agenda. I think it really was to... To, to give these to give these captains confidence, it was to let them know that you know God is faithful, and you don't need to doubt that going forward. It was to let them know that uh, you don't even need to compromise. You don't need to worry about them seeking retaliation, because if you really believe God and you believe He's going to be faithful, there isn't going to be anybody left to retaliate. You know, we know that. You know, again, as I just stated earlier, that that didn't end up being the case. But had everyone been destroyed as they were supposed to have been, that would have been the point. That would have been the case. There wouldn't have been anybody left to retaliate. As pastor's been going through the book of, as, as looking at a couple of passages in Psalms, you know, Psalm two two says the kings of the earth are against God, but someday Christ is going to put his enemies under his feet. Psalm one hundred ten one says they will become his footstool. Colossians 2:15, and man, this may let this may lend a little bit of credibility to those that would suggest that public humiliation wasn't wrong. Colossians 2:15 says Christ is going to make a show of his enemies openly when he comes someday. He's going to humi- humiliate his enemies, and you know the Book of Revelation makes that clear. God laughs at his enemies. Verse number 26. And again, you know, as as Glenn, you know, if you want to make a comment, don't don't hesitate. I mean, I'll 
just move right along. Verse number 26, there is no more opportunity to repent for these five kings. You know, their sin is punished. Their iniquity is full. They're hanged on these five trees. Um, you know, time has run out. I mean, 400 years have gone by with, with God being patient with the wickedness of these nations. And God has finally reached that point where he says no more. And then we, we kind of start into a series of verses that are, you know, fairly repetitive, as you may have noticed while we were reading, where it pretty much kind of describes the the demise of each of these various cities that they, they encounter and come across and and kind of, uh, you know, just kind of lets you see how they work their way much, you know, further deep into the southern part of Canaan. Verse 27, we have the another memorial of stones. Um you know, it says they at the, ver- the end of the verse, they laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. This is the fifth rem- memorial of stones that we have come across so far in the book of Joshua. And in verse 28, this is really Joshua kind of underscoring the point that, you know, you know, they've got to make the best of the opportunity that they have. Notice the way the, the verse starts out. It says, in that day. And, and, you know, that's significant. That's why Joshua decided that, you know, they, they were going to roll great stones over the mouth of the cave. You know, he didn't want to lose this opportunity. He knew that these people were confused and, you know, they were scattered and they didn't have effective leadership. And so he wanted to, to pursue them while, you know, before they had an opportunity to regroup. So he makes the most of that opportunity. And this verse, like verse 40, uh, makes it clear that. This, well, verse 40 makes it clear, you know, again, we've kind of been through this several times over the course of several weeks, but this was all done according to the command of the Lord. You know, verse 40 makes that perfectly clear. Look at the end of verse 40, as the Lord God of Israel commanded. You know, every time we're reading this, we, we constantly have to remind ourselves that even though this is obviously extreme, this is very severe, this is total destruction, this is total annihilation, this was done and we see those words used repeatedly again as we as we saw the the repetitiveness of these verses they come to a city and it's utterly destroyed you know you see that phrase they left none remaining they were they were being faithful they were doing what god asked them to do we also see in these verses that uh, notice that that they all say notice like in verse 29 it says then Joshua passed from Makkah and all Israel with him this is continued fulfillment of the promise that um, you remember way back at the beginning of the book, you know, the, the two and a half tribes, they were to be involved in these battles and they were to be participants just as much so as the other nine and a half tribes. And, you know, the idea here is, as you see that phrase repeated over and over, nobody can rest until everybody can rest. You know, it wasn't like they were just going to send on a few and, and some people were going to go back and take it easy. No, they all had to, to pursue this battle. It was for all, all Israel. We see down in verse 33, it says, Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua smote him and his people until he had left him none remaining. Now when it says came up, he was from further south. Some believe maybe a, a portion of, the, uh, of land that was even further, that was more southern than than Israel really even had their intentions of obtaining. And so, you know, this is yet another example of a foolish decision on someone's part. We see many times in the book of Joshua that somebody 
comes to the aid, comes to the help of somebody, and then, you know, like Bethel came to the, to the help of Ai, and then they met their destruction. You know, it's just a lesson. Be careful who we ally with. You know, we don't want to get in, you know, we don't want to have God's judgment put on us because of who we choose to associate with. And they're destroyed just like everyone else because they choose to help. And, you know, it lists here several, uh, besides the five men that were brought out of the cave and were hanged, now as they're continuing to push through the southern part of Canaan, they come across some of these other cities whose kings that they, they come across, and they're also hanged. So they're being consistent in that regard. Verse number 40. This is where we have a general description of the size of the area that was conquered. It says, And Joshua smote all of the country of the hills and of the south and of the vale and of the springs and all their kings, and he left none remaining. And when we get to chapter 11, that's when they really kind of turn their focus to the northern part of Canaan. But, you know, they've made tremendous progress here. I mean, Again, for several chapters, you know, they were confined to these individual battles against Jericho and Ai and some of these small cities. But now, uh, you know, if you have a map in your Bible, it's probably directing you to the fact that they've taken over a very sizable, a very significant portion of the land. So they're really making a lot of headway. Now, in verse number 40, also, some people are a little perplexed. It says he, you know, in many of these verses, it says he left none remaining and utterly destroyed all that breathes. And that troubles some people because there does seem to be, uh, if you look at it very, you know, if you're not looking at it very carefully, it does seem to be a little bit of a contradiction. When we come to the book of Judges in chapter one, we know that some of the battles that they that they embark on are against people in these exact same lands that verse 40 says everybody was destroyed. And later on in the book of Judges, that same thing is true. So people say, well, no, wait a minute. How can this verse be true? How is it that everybody was destroyed? And yet, just a few short years later, they're having another battle against people in these lands. Well, I don't think that really needs to be a, a point of confusion or, or uh, I don't think that's a difficult controversy, contradiction to resolve. Notice in verse 43, it says, And Joshua returned and all Israel with him unto the camp to Gilgal. Now, when they had pushed into the southern part of Canaan and had pushed out these people and destroyed those people that remained, they went back to Gilgal, which is, you know, their home base. It's up, you know, pretty much pretty close to where they had crossed the Jordan River when they came up around the Dead Sea. So they don't occupy this land right away. And notice back in verse number 20, it says the end of the, the verse, some of the people escaped and entered into fenced cities. So what has happened is, is that when they have gone in and conquered this land and they have pushed everyone out and they have destroyed and, and executed everyone that remained in the land, many people left the land. But as soon as the Israelites had returned to Gilgal, a lot of these people that had been in those, that had escaped to those fortified, they just come right back. So it's, easily explain how that these people then were there when we get to the book of Judges and, you know, they are yet to be conquered again. And we kind of see that throughout the Old Testament. You know, they they push people back and then, you know, they let up and then the people kind of come back in. I mean, you know, look at what's going on in Israel today. You still see there's this constant, you know, the Israel's pushing back those Palestinians that live in Gaza and those that live in the West Bank and those that are in the Golan Heights. And, you know, Israel gets a little bit aggressive and pushes them back and then they let up a little bit and they start to, you know, come a little bit closer. That's just consistent with what was going on, you know, 3,000 years ago. 
So there's really no contradiction here at all. Also, um, interesting that, uh, you know, again, we, we kind of, I don't want to rehash all of this, but we, we talked about this total destruction several weeks ago when we got to chapter 6 because, you know, when they, they went in and, and destroyed all of the people except Rahab, they brought Rahab and her family out alive. And, you know, we looked at several verses pertaining to that. And, you know, God is righteous. He, this is well within his, um, you know, his prerogative. He can do as he pleases. But Matthew Henry does point out that the greatness of God's destruction was oftentimes proportionate to the extent of the people's provocation of God. And that's not really surprising to us. We see back in Genesis chapter 18, verse 20, it's a very, you know, it's a verse you don't want to overlook when you're, when you're evaluating the, the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, God rained the fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin was very grievous. That's, that's the way it's stated. Turn to Jonah chapter 1. Kind of see something similar to this in the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, we, we kind of see the same thing here. It says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now that doesn't mean that God had never noticed it before and that somehow he just became aware of it. That's not what that means at all. It just means God's patience has run out. That's what it means. And... Uh, he has severe destruction in mind for Nineveh also. You'll notice that in chapter 3, verse 4, that's what Jonah says. It says, And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was going to, again, that was going to be total destruction. Now, we know, we're familiar with the book of Jonah, that, that God, you know, looked down at verse 10, and God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Any reason to believe that God wouldn't have done the same thing if the Canaanites had changed? You know, we read in the book of Genesis how that God said they had 400 years and time was running out, but any reason to think God wouldn't have given them another 400 years if they had changed? Uh, probably a worthwhile question. I mean, I, you know, God is very merciful. He's very patient. I, it's kind of a sobering thought, you know, when you read these verses in you know, re- related to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, the the pronounced judgment on Nineveh. You know, I think, you know, what does God have in store for our country? I mean, what, how far can we push him? How far can we provoke him? What, you know, what is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of God's being patient with us? And, you know, I obviously don't have a clue. I don't have the answer to that. Um, you know, it's, can be it can be very discouraging you know when we you know we often ask ourselves and and we don't know and and you know we we evaluate our nation and we think how do we compare to some of these other nations that face God's destruction and and I don't know how far we've slipped but it sure seems like we've slipped a long way and we're you know I don't know that we're we're that far away from you know what was going on there verse number 42 Joshua chapter 10 just close out the chapter here. And again, this is this is consistent with what we have seen uh, really emphasized throughout 
the entire book of Joshua. It says, And all these kings and their land in Joshua take at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. God did this. And they, they were nothing without Him. They just couldn't have done anything. It was all God's doing. And just, you know, that's the way we need to view our lives today in our church. We can't do anything of any value in and of ourselves. It's the Lord who works through us. It's God that does everything. All right, that's that's about it. Anybody have any comments? We've got a minute or two if you have anything you want to contribute. Anyone? All right.